my name is Oscar Rickett. I'm a journalist, and you are listening to the Unlawful State podcast on open democracy. Once upon a time, technology, automation, artificial intelligence, these things were meant to set us free. People thought, great thinkers thought before the Second World War, that there would be a future in which human beings hardly worked at all because you know, the difficult things that we deal with in our life would be taken, taken care of by machines. But of course, alongside this, there has always been another darker side to technology. And looking at it in the year 2020, we can see around the world that automated decision-making is being used not to set people free, but in fact, to clamp down on them. Um, in the United Kingdom, the Department of Work and Pensions is developing artificial intelligence to manage the benefit system and already we have reports from people on the hard end of it that this is leading to all sorts of bad decision making cruel decision making i'm here with cory crider who is one of the directors at foxglove which is a new how would you describe it cory we're a non-profit basically foxglove along with the um, Joint Council for Welfare of Immigrants is bringing a case against the Home Office because it says that the Home Office's automated decision-making on visa applications prioritizes some people over others. Corey, could you tell us about the case? Absolutely. Now, if you ask the Home Office what its algorithm is, it will say that it is a streaming tool, right? It just It's like a traffic light. It, it grades every visa applicant kind of green, low risk, Amber, medium risk, and red for high risk. You know, but the computer uh, is not deciding, they say. It's just a streaming tool. But what we call it in our slightly glib way is speedy boarding for white people. <laughs> because basically, right, what's happening is um, the way that the algorithm we think is, is allocating these decisions and which queue you go in is shaking out in a patently biased and frankly racist way. Um, and, you know, I don't want to romanticize the old system where border officers were processing visas because humans have been being pretty unfair to one another for thousands and thousands of years. But the problem with the visa streaming tool, and I think more broadly with computerized decision making in government, is that it takes that system, right, where there's like a human making a decision, and it puts part of it behind the secretive wall of the algorithm and it's harder to interrogate for bias, for unfairness, and therefore for people like us to challenge it when those systems are unfair. So if, if we have a kind of traffic-like system, then we can, I can kind of uh, infer from what you're saying that the green light will be given to you know, countries from the global north, and um, the red light perhaps will be uh, given to people who are from countries from the global south. Is, is that the case? And, and, and what evidence do you have? So they admit, right, straight up admit that they discriminate on the basis of nationality now. We wrote and we said, you appear to be doing this. And they're like, yes, well, absolutely, we do do it. But we've got a lot of visa applicants and we've got to, you know, we've got to make a queue somehow, right? Um, now, they, they do not want to disclose the list. I don't want to give you the list of who are the desirable and who are the undesirable nations, uh, because now that we are looking to negotiate trade deals with everybody and want to say that Britain is open for business, we're frankly a bit concerned that, let's say, I don't know, India or Pakistan or Brazil might be pissed off if it turned out that they were in the back of the queue and that the foreign office who have to go and try to negotiate trade deals with these people uh, might have a hard time if, if, if actually the home office lets it be known that 
we don't really want uh, more of those people coming to our shores to live and work and pay taxes, which is what, of course, those people generally do. Do you know when this list was was come up with? The reality is, I mean, kind of shockingly, is that they've actually had this list for years. They've had the list for years. And the existence of the list, it's one of those funny things about these algorithms. You know, you start to ask questions about the algorithm and then you kind of lift up the carpet and a whole bunch of other stuff skitters out. They've actually had the list for a long time. Um, but so let's just step back for a minute, though. Like, what what's the streaming tool? Why do they have it? Like, what's the wider context? Um, basically, they have shut down or in the process, the home office are in the process of like shutting down all of their international visa processing centers and bringing it all in uh, to a couple of offices, basically, in Sheffield and Croydon. So what used to be like a kind of massive international network of people who processes the visa applications of everybody wanted to come to the UK, totally centralized, and they want to do more with less, right? I mean, if you think about, if you step back and you think about it for a minute, the backdrop of all of these systems, right? Benefits, policing, visas, everything is austerity. Um, every department in government has been told to, quote, do more with less. And lo and behold, somebody says they can build or will sell a software solution to help you, quote, focus your attention on, on the truly high risk people uh, and not focus attention where you don't have to. Right. That's the that's what's driving all of this is, is the is the effort to, quote, streamline and, and use less resource and have, frankly, less people uh, making the decisions. So what that means in practice is you've got it all done or the vast majority of it now being done out of Croydon. Um, and, you know, if the traffic light system is, you know, we don't know. Of course, it's going to be the case that the, the nationalities are going to shake out in the way that you say rich countries, you know, are going to get themselves into the, the green queue. Poor countries, people who tend to be of color are going to be in the yellow and the red queue. Um, but also just thinking about the processing targets and the way that that looks, because they're like, oh, well, it's streaming. The, gov- the home office tends to say it's streaming. It's not a decision-making tool, right? These are expert people making these decisions. But you're here you are in Croydon. You're this worker. Let's say you're working the green queue. I mean, you have a massive load of targets to get through every single day, right? So you're not going to, once it's streamed by the algorithm into green, you're not going to be doing a kind of really sharp, meaningful review of those those applications in the green queue, right? I'm not saying it's an automatic grant, but that's like, it's, it's the next best thing to it. Whereas if you're red, right? Imagine just you, any person sitting there just normally processing the red, their targets are lower. Um, the processing time is much, much greater. And also they've just had this flashing red light come up in front of the, of the application. So the idea that it's not going to make like a material difference to the outcome uh, which of these cues you get in, just, you know, it doesn't wash. It doesn't make sense when you think about the way that humans make decisions. Right. And there's a sort of key point here about the use of of automated decision making, because you correctly point out that, you know, the, there's, this has not exactly been a, been a, a kind of, been a kind of beautiful, wonderful system for a long time. No. But, but at least you have a, a human being making a decision. And the issue with automated decision making is that it, it, it becomes narrow and and it and it reinforces so this this list for example it already exists but it's reinforced by the algorithm isn't it exactly so there's there's two things in what you just said there there's the kind of um there's the black box problem where you know when humans are unfair right if you're unfair to me if you discriminate against me right I'm not saying that the courts always get it right, but over years and years of legal challenges, right? We've got like a language for that. We've got a path through the court. I can sue you and we can talk about what your bias looks like, what discrimination looks like, uh, and, you know, and what a remedy looks like, right? That's all, that's all part of law and politics and has been for a long time. 
with computerized decision systems, the risk is that we, that we go backwards, that all of that progress that we made on discrimination law in this country and the Equality Act gets hidden behind a system where we can't find the bias and we can't find the discrimination because we're not testing it and we're not challenging it, right? So that's that one problem, you know, it, the, the, the sense that some of the decision has gone into a black box and it makes it harder for us to challenge. And the second one is this kind of feedback loop effect or this doom loop that you can go into with these algorithmic systems where if there's a, you know, how do you, how do you decide where to put people? How do you decide who goes red, who goes amber, and who goes green, right? And if it is the case, as they basically say, that they train the algorithm on enforcement statistics. So in other words, um, if we denied a certain subset of people before, then that's, tend, that's gonna tend to suggest that those people are high risk. Or if we deported a certain subset of people from a certain country, that that's gonna suggest that that country is high risk. Then you wash that through the algorithm, and the algorithm is just gonna go and tell you to do what you've already done, right? It's, it's just the same feedback loop problem as you get with something like, um, predictive policing algorithms in the United States. Do you know anything about, I mean, is it worth talking about those yeah, predictive policing in the States? Yeah. All right, so in the US, like Los Angeles Police Department, for example, has for a while been running these predictive policing algorithms. I mean, it's a kind of minority report style scenario where uh, uh, this software, you take all of your data, right? The police feed into the algorithm all their data. It's like, where did I conduct an arrest? Um, you know, where did we get called out and so forth and so on. Uh, and then the algorithm predicts and tells them where crime is likely to take place again so that they can go and focus their policing resource, right? They know where to go and they say, well, this is what you should go to do. Here's the problem, right? Here's the problem. In the U.S., right, study after study after study after study shows that um, drug use across the American population is pretty much identical across kind of races and classes and whatever, right? Like, like black people, white people use drugs at about the same rate. Policing of drug use, right, and arrests and incarceration for drug use are wildly disparate. Um, black communities have for decades in America been heavily policed. And so what is the cop's data that's going into the algorithm? What it says is, well, I went over to this poor neighborhood. You know, I went to Skid Row in the case of Los Angeles, which is the kind of largest encampment of homeless people in Los Angeles. Uh, and I made a bunch of arrests there. I made a bunch of stops there. I found some narcotics there. That goes into the algorithm. The algorithm says, well, gosh, you might want to go back and look there again, as opposed to I went to Beverly Hills and I picked up the rich white teenager for his, exactly, you know, and, and, and that problem is going to be replicated with unless we interrogate these systems, unless we have to open up their workings to outside scrutiny and test them for bias, just like we're supposed to test human decision making for bias. That doom loop, that feedback loop effect, where the algorithm just goes and tells you to go and do what you've already done, is going to keep happening again and again. And it, it bakes again. in class and racial mm -hmm. prejudices, and this obviously, of course, this we're we're going a bit off track here. This came up with obviously with presidential hopeful Mike Bloomberg trying to defend his rec record on stop and frisk, and he seemed to not quite understand that the whole point was that if you are, as a policy, continuing to stop and frisk young black men, then you know that perpetuates that pe that perpetuates the problem, you know. And there's a whole set of kind of societal issues that we could talk about here, but perhaps just to to, to ask one more question on the case mm -hmm. and on this system that the Home Office is using to process visa applications, are you seeing the 
impact of this already with visa applicants? Are you have you been speaking to and hearing from visa applicants who have come from, you know, X country that's on the bad list who have said, well, this has happened to me? That's a great question. So the problem for the individual visa applicant, right, is not is not like they get something back from the home office that says computer said no or <laughs> or computer streamed you read and then we said no. That's not how that works, right? So it's quite difficult to get systematic figures. And actually, I think they're quite reluctant to track certain of these things because they know that if they audit it for bias, they're going to find some bias. Um, but what we do know is this. If you look at institutions that are trying to get people in for certain things, so let's say that you are uh, a medical school and you want to have uh, you know, African medical researchers over for a conference, an academic conference. It has gotten so, and African visitor visa applicants are, are actually the most problematic. I mean, it's, it's, it is known to be a systemic problem, right? It's gotten so bad, right, in this country that a lot of academic institutions just don't bother trying to hold those conferences here anymore if, because they can't get African colleagues over to participate, right? So... Look, the UK Inspector of Borders and Immigration, I think that's what he's called. Anyway, for, lovely former MI5 chap. Anyway, he, he basically did a report a couple of years ago where he went and he kind of he, he investigated the use of the streaming tool. And he said, look, the risk here is that it becomes a de facto decision-making tool. Now, the UK, you know, UK border agency, the visas and immigration, they all insist that that's not the case. They're like, no, 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 no. The human is in the loop. But the, that's not the question, right? The, the question is, how does the, how does the person react to these recommendations, to the red recommendation, the yellow recommendation, the, re the green recommendation? So, yes, there are, I mean, it's absolutely clear, right, that not all comers are equal, that all, not all nations are equal. I mean, they basically admit that. Um, what I think we're trying to explore, right? is whether this, whether this process even makes sense by their own standards, right? Like whether, they are, whether this is a good vehicle of policymaking. And if actually what they've done is they've kind of, as they say, rinsed their existing enforcement statistics through an algorithm, then all that is is it's just accelerated, you know, confirmation bias. I see, because the, the, so, I mean, to, to talk for it, to, to sort of make the comparison with Department of Work and Pensions, um, you know, which will be, which is using, which is using automated decision making as part of its rolling out of universal credit. Mm. And that means that 7 million people will be affected by this. And they have, um, they now have a unit that operates in Manchester and Newcastle, um, which has, which has people, uh, you know, information technology officers working in it. They've employed, I think, nearly a thousand new IT staff in the last couple of years to do this. Um, and it's part of what they call a digital by default agenda. And they also refer to a virtual, a work, a virtual workforce. They now, the units in Manchester and, and chef and Manchester and Newcastle are called intelligent automation. They're, in, they're called the intelligent automation garage. Um, <laughs> It's like the appification of everything, right? Right, right. exactly. I mean, it's, it's like let's have a computer interface between ourselves and literally every aspect of public life. And actually, and it sort of, and it, and thus, it sort of, it is the sort of almost the kind of apex, the apogee of neoliberalism because it 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 employs a new technology in the name of austerity. And now, what they say, of course, and what I imagine the Home Office is saying is. 
and and it's true to say, I think first that, as I suggested in the introduction, this technology is neutral. I would say, you know, it can be used for good, but it's being used perhaps more often for bad. Maybe maybe that's something you disagree with. We we can talk about that in a second. But but they would say, and they do say, of course, and the Home Office has said to you already. Well, look, actually, you know, we're just we're trying to make it more efficient. You know, like why have why employ these these poor guys who are just going through all this paperwork? You don't need that. We're just trying to make it more efficient. Um, you know, and indeed, in 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 a talk that he gave, the lawyer Lord Sales comes up with with with. And it's a good talk, the, the Henry Brook lecture that he gives. He, mm. he, he makes quite a sort of touching point, which is to say that actually, you know, if you made efficiency savings on benefits claimants, you could give more generous benefits. And obviously it's a wonderful idea and it would be great if that, would, if that was going to happen. But, but that's not what we're dealing with, is it? No, and you know what happens? I, I, what happens in general, right? You see... The sy- is the system neutral? I mean, it depends on what you mean by the system, I suppose, right? Like, I mean, you can easily see how um, these applications could be rolled in a way that, that, that was potentially positive in some context, right? Like, but it's the thing that's prob- problematic about them, right, is that they're road tested inevitably and always, right? Not on rich people and rich people's services, but on communities of color and the poor, right? And they are, and they're, and they are done uh, without really good evidence base for them being, A, quite frankly, value for public money, uh, or B, being fair, right? Or B, being fair, right? So we talk about efficiency as one value, right? Which I suppose, efficiency for whom and what? Like, where does the savings go? Is the savings just passed on to Capita or one of these other third-party software contractors? You know, who gets that savings? Right, and this, sorry, it's important to say that just as context that the government has contracts with IBM, with Tata Consulting, with Capgemini, with UiPath, the New York-based firm co-founded by Daniel Dines, who is referred to as the first bot billionaire. So there's obviously a lot of people feeding off this yeah, system there's, already. There's somebody with something to sell, right? I'm not, and I'm not saying that there couldn't ever be a savings um, extracted from it. But again, savings for whom? Where does that money go? I think that you know that that word efficiency is used to cloak a lot of value judgments about like who wins, who loses, and where money goes. And then the second question I would say is, well, is that, why is efficiency suddenly become the one goal of public life, right? Actually, what about fairness? What about equality? What about decency to our fellow citizens, right? Those are values that the government should also be seeking to pursue, not simply making it run like a kind of well-oiled machine. And then there's, the, again, and, and, and again, without these systems being opened up to public scrutiny, I don't think we should just take as an article of faith that they actually deliver the savings that they're supposed to. So if you look at a couple of, a, a couple of other outfits, like Data Justice Lab out of the University of uh, Cardiff, has done a kind of systematic study where they did a bunch of freedom of information requests about, you know, automated decisions across public life and just to see what would come out of local councils, right? And so totally a different one from the DWP one you mentioned, but another one was that Hackney Council here in London uh, experimented with a software system by a company called Zanchura that was supposed to help them identify um, whether a child might be basically at risk of um, neglect or abuse and need earlier kind of social intervention. It sounds crazy, but this is what was, this was what was tested uh, and provided to Hackney Council uh, by Zanchura. And, you know, Hackney, having piloted it, 
you know, basically were like, it didn't work. It basically didn't work, and they had to scrap the system. I think there's this, the, again, I, efficient. Efficient for whom and with what value? That's the question you got to ask. There's this kind of apification of public life and, and datification of the, the citizen. And, and I just think, actually, you've got to ask yourself the question anytime that government wants to roll out one of these automated systems, like, what's the use case? What are we, what are we seeking to achieve? Is there really a need to automate this process? Or is that a way of kind of hiding a political judgment, right? Like, can it actually do the job better and faster than a human, or can it not? Now, the the the, the mentioning of, of of the Hackney case there makes me think that it's important to talk about what what data point. I mean, so so AI automated decision making. We can see the Home Office are using it. We can see the, the, the Department of Work and Pensions are using it. Local councils are using it. Is there anywhere else? using it on a on a sort of big operational scale in the UK at the moment? Um, I mean, I think you would find it pretty consistently across all kinds of ranges of government. So yes, um, the police. So And yes, there's this garbage in, garbage out problem as well, right? So Durham police, to their credit, have been a little bit more uh, transparent about the workings of these systems that they got in, but they were using a predictive policing model as well. Um, and uh, and a predictive, I think it was, um, yes, it was, a, it was an algorithm that was supposed to determine whether you should be eligible for bail or cash bail. Um, the har heart tool is that harm? Anyway, I'm not going to get the algorithm, the the acronym right, but anyway, the heart tool that Durham had for a while. They always have an acronym. Yeah, well, of course. the 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 one of the criteria used to assess somebody's risk and therefore their eligibility for bail was their postcode. Like you don't have to know a lot about the way that housing is in the UK to know that that's going to have an instant effect on people who are poor, right? Um, they fixed that. They have since fixed it because, they, um, because it was pointed out to them that that was problematic and almost inevitably going to bake in class bias and, and therefore probably unfair. But, the, but that kind of stuff comes up again and again. The other thing I've noticed that's very that is very troubling is that the the people who have bought or used the systems, um, A, don't themselves often know how they work, and B, are really reluctant to talk to outsiders about it. And so... Right, and to the point where freedom of information requests have been denied. Yeah, well, A, they get denied, and then B, some of the stuff that comes back, there was one that has come back that's kind of hiding out there in plain sight, where a local council, I'm not going to say which one it is, because I'm going to pounce on them a bit, but anyway, a local <laughs> council, stay tuned, but anyway, a I local council's local council. documents literally say uh, that... They've got this. They've got a risk uh, streaming algorithm thing. That's basically like this is this is what you do, and uh, to ask people to require to provide additional uh, documentation of their eligibility. And it says to the caseworker, the instruction to the caseworker in the PowerPoint is: if the person is flagged as high risk, lie. Like if they ask why they have been flagged as high risk, lie. Say that this is an this is a random check, not. I'm sorry that actually something has gone wonky in the system, right? It, the, the, the policy of the local authority is to lie to benefit applicants. Like, how is that democratically acceptable? How is that going to lead to fair and equitable governance? It's just in, right? It in. They don't get to do that. I don't, I don't, you know, using the possible risk of fraud 
uh, as an excuse to lie to benefit applicants just doesn't watch, right? Right, and already we're having benefit applicants describing it as, you know, this nightmarish bureaucracy, it's Kafkaesque, and they say that civil servants are are now trapped by the algorithm. The civil servants are saying, well, we, we can't do anything different because the algorithm has su suggested this. Um, the DWP has said that it gets information from private credit reference agencies, the police, valuation office, the valuation office agency, land registry, the National Fraud Initiative. We don't know where else it gets information from, or at least I don't. Now... I mean, these, a lot of these sources of information are not particularly reliable. Um, you know, and people are forever finding that they're denied certain things based on, I mean, a, 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 completely, a completely innocuous and un, particularly unimportant one is that I, I was recently denied a credit card. Now I'm a freelance journalist. I don't earn a lot of money. Mm. Um, but I'm almost certain that this is because I was uh, charged by a private car company, a uh, parking company. I was given an erroneous ticket and and I refused to pay it and it's gone on my record. And there you go. That's a, that you're going to be and fine that when you're 73, right? Like right. it's on your it's a, in your it's part of your data self now and that's just it. No, exactly. You know, that's and, exactly and, right. and 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 relative to most of the people we're talking about, I have an extraordinary amount of privilege. Yeah. So yeah. so the the system you know, we, we have in our society, and particularly, you know, with the governments that we've had, particularly with the government we had at the moment, have at the moment, we have these entrenched class, racial, gender, you name it. It's all it's all there. The automated decision making is baking it in, as you've said. What in this in this scenario, what do campaigners and lawyers like yourself, what do you do to fight back? I think it's got to be a collective endeavor by all of us, right? Community groups, citizens advice bureaus, like women's centers, law centers, everybody doing this work. I mean, if you serve the poor or communities of color or frankly, just citizens, ordinary citizens, um, we all need to turn our attention to this issue. And basically, we've got to drag this stuff. Uh, out of the black box of the algorithm, back into the world of just democracy and politics, right? So first of all, we've got we've to force the authorities to say more about what the systems are and how they operate, right? So one of the things that we've been doing at Fox Club is helping distribute to people kind of uh, template subject access requests so that you, right, under GDPR and, all, and, and, and various other things, you can just put in a request and say, turn over everything that you've got about me. So you've got a sense of like what your data profile is. And that's a way of starting to try and kind of, it's like the thread at the end of the sweater. It's, it's a way of starting to try to unravel the way the process works. Um, and we do plan to kind of seed those out like, you know, kind of on the, on the wind. So not just relying on freedom of information, but, but actually people's individual rights, because it's actually quite a lot harder to use uh, some of the various exceptions in freedom of information uh, to avoid giving over people's individual rights to their data under subject access requests. So that's one. Um, and in fact, the sales lecture that you mention, uh, that's the Supreme mm, Court. It's uh, a good resource. Just, yeah, well, he, he says, he kind of, he kind of sets out a, a course through that he thinks the courts are going to have to use when they assess these algorithmic systems. And including, right, well, he says, I, you know, we think that the courts are going to need disclosure potentially the algorithm. I mean, the Home Office is not going to like that, right? Like when we wrote <laughs> and said, please give us the algorithm, you know, they've given us um, a bit of top-line summary of it, but they absolutely well, have Isn't there also a problem here with, with uh, kind of algorithms that have been developed privately and 
therefore companies do not want to reveal what the algorithm is because it's like their own intellectual property. That's absolutely right. That is another key problem of kind of public governance now. And we just, I mean, I think it's totally unacceptable, right? Like I, do, I don't see how public bodies are going to get away with their with not complying with their duty not to discriminate against people and and excuse themselves from their duty to treat people equally and fairly by saying, sorry, we bought in a system and we can't tell you how it works because the company is going to be pissed off. Like You actually don't get to do that. Right, but Um, we're existing in a world now in which companies can sue governments. Well, sure, but I—I uh, I mean, I actually just—I'm I'm not is, saying that favorably. No, I'm just yeah, saying yeah, yeah, it. absolutely no. The, we, but it is going to be. I think it's going to be. It's just a matter for democratic contest. So, let, let's take a a good municipal example in the states, right? Uh, so in Oakland, uh, they had a problem with the cops buying surveillance equipment without public notice and comment and debate. And they just passed a local ordinance that was like, you're done here. You don't actually get to buy this stuff anymore without coming to the people first and having an open public hearing about what you're proposing to get, how it works, and whether you've tested it for bias. And I don't see any reason why, when you're talking about systems that have a very significant effect on the livelihoods of millions of British people, like the universal credit system, why we shouldn't have to have some kind of public notice and comment procedure, not just about top lines, you know, a kind of fig leaf for public engagement, but real meaningful external scrutiny about how these systems operate. So that's the other thing. Uh, that's the other thing that we need to do. But the, I mean, look, basically, right? I don't think that the the case is not the case is not kind of seeking to make law out of whole cloth, right? It's a it's a groundbreaking case, and that it's the first case. Um, basically attacking the bias in the algorithm itself that we've had here in Britain. But it's just an extension of uh, public law principles, legal principles that Britain has had for years and years and years and years, right? It's the Equality Act. It's not about GDPR, actually. It's ju- it's just about the British government's duty to treat people equally. Right. And because, I mean, you know, the, the sort of, the the kind of, I mean, one statistic that springs to mind is that 5 million adults in the UK don't have regular access to the internet. And we might say, following on from that, that these systems are opaque. I mean, of course they're opaque. We've just been talking about how opaque they are. But, but I mean, you know, we, you know we, we both use computers. How much do we understand about how they work? These systems aren't even on computers. They're not on machines. They're in the cloud. So they're kind of even more... It's a kind of quintessentially modern experience because you can sort of reach out but you cannot really grab these things right yeah and, and it, you have to try and pull as you're saying pull them into the realm of, of of the real and the democratic yeah and it's important to kind of also slightly to demystify it a bit right like this home office algorithm that we're challenging it's not like it's artificial it's not you know it's not a neural net here it's not like a super complicated computer program right it's, it's basically not like deep world or it's whatever a, no man <laughs> it's like a, it's like a flowchart right it's like a fast computerized flowchart it's chart, a spreadsheet basically. that it's says like, sudan yeah, on it yeah it, <laughs> you got it right and 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 i think there can be a tendency on behalf of the people selling some of these systems and and others to slightly overcomplicate things and be like oh well there there dear little Nonprofit lawyer, you couldn't possibly understand my incredibly complex computer system and how it's working. It's like, I, no, no, no. actually, what you have to do is justify 
uh, your compliance with the law. You have to show why it isn't biased. You have to show why it's fair. To take it to a totally different example, right? I don't know how a car engine works either, right? Don't know. No idea. But I, I don't need to know how a car engine works to know that Volkswagen cheated on its emissions testing to the European regulators, right? Like that's that was what humans did. Ultimately, yes, of course, there is a computer involved here. But the key is that, you know, there's no there's no there there. There's no kind of like, you know, there's no how behind the system. There's only us. There's only humans designing the systems, deciding values, deciding what to value, what to exclude, you know, who wins and who loses. That's what we've got to understand. It's always people. Do you think other lawyers in the courts fail to understand that sometimes? Well, I think that we're going to have a job to do, yeah, slightly demystifying this kind of process of the algorithm. But I really do think ultimately what's going to happen is going to be the kind of Wizard of Oz thing. You're going to pull the curtain back on the algorithm and, it's, you know, he's just going to be there kind of turning a handle with a bird in a cage or whatever. It's going to be a guy who works for DWP in Newcastle. Well, yeah, exactly. It's going to be Phil. spreadsheet in front of It's going to be Phil and Croydon. No, it totally is. But but the, but again, that's, that's why if they're so confident in the efficiency, the legality, and the fairness of their system, then open it up to outside scrutiny. It's that simple. How confident are you given, given, given how sort of easily this automated decision making seems to seems to kind of fold into the ideology of our times and the ideology of this government how confident are you that, that you might be able to claw some of this back i feel pretty good about it actually i think people are starting to wake up to the idea that something is going on with their data and that you know when we go about our day online that it isn't just about seeing a creepy ad anymore, but that actually some like some kind of profile has been made about us that's going to be used to grade us and sift us and sort us and make crucial decisions. And I think seeing that power being exercised is the necessary first step to challenging it and taking some of that power back. And I also think like, you know, I don't think it, I think people kind of look at Dominic Cummings as, I mean, look, you don't have to read his 50,000 word blog to know that he's got this vision for like a slick, machine-driven government that maybe is not commensurate with everybody else's ideals about what democracy should be, right? So I'm not saying we're going to win every case, uh, but I think people are starting to wake up to the idea that there's a democratic problem here. And that's that's step one to bringing it back within democratic control. Corey Crider, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Unlawful State. If you would like to hear some of our other podcasts, you can find a link on this page to all of our podcasts in the series.